Welcome to episode 334 of On The Schmooze. Let's do this. Welcome to On The Schmooze, the podcast that highlights talented people from different fields, explores how they built strong networks, and overcame challenges on their way to becoming successful leaders. Now here's your host, Robbie Samuels. Is your organization or employee resource group seeking speakers for June's Pride Month festivities? Or perhaps you're looking for a speaker for LGBTQ History Month in October? Either way, I'd love to be considered. My two most frequently requested presentations are Redefining Networking, Strategies for Success in an Evolving Landscape, where I talk about both in-person and virtual networking strategies, and of course, my low-tech solutions for a highly engaging Zoom event, which is based on my best-selling book by the same name. Both have elements of DEIB woven throughout. That's diversity, equity, inclusion, and belonging. Would an interview maybe be better than a presentation? Well, you can interview me about those topics. I'm also open to being interviewed about being an openly trans business owner of a certified LGBT business enterprise, how I reinvented myself when COVID-19 shuttered my business, why I'm choosing to attend the National Speakers Association annual conference in Florida this summer, despite the horrific anti-LGBT pro-gun laws that are being enacted, and kind of anything else you think would be of interest to your group. Reach out to Robbie at RobbieSamuels.com to start a conversation about how I can come and present to your group on one of these topics or maybe another that I can support your organization with. Now, on to this week's interview. You may know you're listening to this show along the Marketing Podcast Network, but did you know there are other great shows on MPN to help your business? Christy Heiler hosts a fantastic podcast called Own It. Christy, tell us more about the show. Own It is all about celebrating women and non-binary advertising agency owners. We talk about buying out of the Boys Club of Advertising because less than 1% of ad agencies are owned by women. And where can people subscribe? You can find the podcast at untilyouownit.com. We're also on the Marketing Podcast Network at marketingpodcast.net. And of course, you can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. You heard her. Go subscribe. Today's guest is solving employee disengagement and retention issues in the workplace. As an international keynote speaker, corporate trainer, and executive speech slash acting coach, she works with leaders who need to learn how to create teams that find solutions by parking their egos, playing nice, engaging, and retaining employees. She's an award-winning actor, author, filmmaker, and nurse. She co-founded a stand-up and improv comedy company in the San Francisco area and has taught improv since 1995 to students of all ages and stages. She's the author of Improv to Improve Your Leadership Team, Tear Down Walls, and Build Bridges, a book where you can quickly discover how to use the principles of applied improvisational techniques and exercises from the arts to help teams effectively connect and communicate. As an actor, she's just back from an off-Broadway run with her third solo show, An Evening with Florence Nightingale, The Reluctant Celebrity. Please join me welcoming Candy Campbell. Thank you so much, Robbie. Great to be here. Thank you so much for being here, Candy, from your place in DC. As you show, know, this is a show about building strong networks, but the context is leadership. So tell me, how do you define leadership? And when did you realize you had the skills to lead? Uh, leadership, in my opinion, is less about the slogans, the acronyms, the things that a lot of people like to spout off because they have an MBA or something. I, not, nothing against those people, of course. Uh, in my experience, those sorts of things don't change culture. As a matter of fact, in healthcare, which has been my main industry, uh, we have evidence to show the contrary, even though in the early 2000s uh, in healthcare, we recognized that um, as many people were dying on a daily basis as, as if a jumbo jet was crashing from the wrong reasons, let's say. And uh, we've been trying really hard with different programs to influence the outcomes, the patient outcomes. But I recognize after working with Silicon Valley 
startups and other businesses a long time ago that that uh, these sorts of principles, and I've outlined 12 principles within uh, improv, they are so effective for any sort of business or association. And that is the sort of leadership that plays into the cognitive behavioral science of play. And those are the things that are all based on relationships because this is a long answer, isn't it? (laughs) In my opinion, you cannot change culture. You cannot change, um, you cannot be a really good leader unless you can change culture. And the only way to do that is to risk being vulnerable and being your authentic self and building professional relationships within your workspace, wherever that might be. And it sounds like one way to achieve that is through play and through, I mean, it's, it's about having empathy and about being a human in, in a workplace, not just being a person with a, a rote set of criteria for people to do differently. That's so true. The old way of being a leader that maybe most people are aware of is there's a certain set of behaviors that leaders were expected to have. Uh, Like the first time that I had an administrative post, I was basically told I was no longer going to be friends with certain people that I had worked with in the clinical space, which is crazy. Now, I understand. The attorneys are, (laughs) the HR people, they really want you to be mindful of the litigious world we live in and that it's dangerous because if you're friends with somebody and then you're in a leadership position, the the whole business, corporation, associated, wherever it is, might be sued for this conflict of interest or, you know, a kind of nepotism, you know, all all sorts of dreadful things that the that certain people could sue you for. Um, but on the contrary, when you look at certain other businesses that have gotten really well, that have been very successful, um, who have changed their culture to shed that sort of value, there is. It's very interesting how. That that different culture of behind the scenes plays out and the customers can feel it because the employees are happy. They're proud to work there. They feel valued. And that whole idea of changing the culture has to start at the top. You can hope that it's going to start at the ground level by feeding people a, a, a system something and this has happened so many times uh in my own life when before I got into um uh, positions with titles of leadership I remember there's one and I won't even mention it um uh, but there are different ones they're, they're licensed and they're very expensive and they they certify people and I do recall one particular one that's pretty famous came to the hospital that I was working at uh part time while I was in grad school And they required that everyone, I mean, from the environmental staff all the way up through the uh, physicians who were at the top of the totem pole, took a day, a whole day. Uh, They did feed you lunch, a little nice little box lunch, but a whole day of being lectured to about the importance of communication. And it was a real snore. (laughs) And everybody was so incensed. It was the one thing that brought us together at the end. I was just thinking that that it worked. It worked, but not the way they'd planned. That suddenly yeah. having a common enemy is what makes you realize what you have in common with each oh other. My gosh, That's amazing. So when did you start realizing you had some of these, these attributes of leadership that you're describing? I think I've been in denial about that for a long, long time. So now that I look back, you know, there's, there's no, I can say decades. Um, when I was a kid, uh, I, I, well, excuse me, let me preface this. And I, I can say that if you have the gift of being able to write well or speak well, or be funny, people perceive you as a sort of a thought leader. And I've had those sort of gifts 
I just didn't recognize it because in my family, it wasn't a big deal, I guess. I don't know. I'm kind of the oops kid. My, my two brothers were, you know, quite a bit older than me. They, but when I was in kindergarten, they were both in high school, you know, way off. And um, so I remember I have a big, I created a lot of things in my imagination because I was let to play alone a lot. And then uh, when in school, now, I don't know if it was like this when you were in school, Robbie, but when I was in school, it was before in my area, I was from Portland, Oregon. They didn't even have a middle school. It was K through eight. And I remember that occasionally the homeroom teacher would say, you know, we're going to have you all write a creative story of some sort. There was usually a theme. And I do recall that in fourth grade, there was a Thanksgiving creative story theme assignment. And the teacher said that the top, she would grade them and that the top three in her estimation would be allowed to uh, be up in front of the room and read it, you know. So there was another fellow and I who through the years, we were always in the top three. And why? Because mostly we wrote funny stuff. But also that year, for this particular Thanksgiving thing, for whatever reason, I got it into my head that I would write a futuristic sort of a play about Thanksgiving, where instead of a turkey, you know, you had different colored pills, and it was, you know, sort of the Jetsons sort of take on things. And to to my surprise, uh, she um, took me aside one day and said, you know, we're going to have an all-school assembly, and, and I have uh, told them that you've written this play, and I want you to be the narrator of the play and to cast five or six people as the family and to basically be the MC for this particular assembly, K through eight. And it was two assemblies. You had, you know, because they split it up. You had to do it twice. And uh, I wasn't particularly an outgoing, I mean, maybe I've always been friendly, but I was a rather quiet kid. And so um, for whatever reason, I just said, okay, sure. You know, this is, I'm always a rule follower. You want me to do it? Okay, great. I'll do it. And it was that first experience that I realized, first of all, the people that I chose were my friends because they were asking me to pick them, right? And and if I wanted them to like me, then I picked them. Big mistake, but I didn't know because that was like herding cats when they had this little rehearsal. They wouldn't listen to me at all because I was not perceived as a leader of any sort. And um, so anyway, for whatever reason, it was a great hit. And the result of that was that my next year's teacher had clearly talked to the fourth grade teacher and I was tapped to be the first editor of our school newspaper. And they already had kids who were a lot older than me. I was sort of shocked. But on the other hand, I just said, oh, okay, and started interviewing people and such like that. And that sort of thing went on. Wow. What a, I mean, of all origin stories, this one's perfect for you. (laughs) (laughs) But like, what an interesting thing. You do something that you, you you are being a little competitive and fun but you think it's just within your class and really you're thinking it's between you and this one other kid. Like, you know, that's, that's who you saw, saw as your like fun little rivalry. You kind of probably both did work because you were writing funny things and, but you were doing it for yourself because you really enjoyed it, you know, and you didn't think it was going to go bigger than that. But then you have a teacher who sees potential in you and thinks this would be really a big hit. And obviously gets buy-in from the rest of the administration for you to take over a, a portion of the class assembly, uh, the full school assembly time, but your point about asking your friends to, to take on the roles and then you don't actually have any perceived leadership in their circle, um, even though they wanted to get picked, uh, but that that you followed through with it, the rule follow that you are, uh, and delivered enough that the next year they're now asking you to step into this other role that is a really big role. And as you said, there were kids that were three years older than you that probably could have done a, a, as fine a job but they would have graduated quicker. So did they have you do it for multiple years? They did. And See, then like, I got that into was st- smart of them. <laughs> and then I got into student council, but they also allowed me to, to pick helpers. And, you know, interestingly enough, because of that, I met the school librarian, which 
I don't know. I didn't even remember that, you know, as a little kid, you don't necessarily, I don't know, she wasn't a big deal, but for whatever reason, she presented herself with a book and said, um, you know, the uh, Library Association of Multnomah County has a new kids program. And uh, I was able to pick a, a, a person to read a book. And if you'd like, you, you write a little summary, I'll help you if you need help. And they're going to publish it in the Oregonian newspaper. And I'm like, oh, well, okay. You know what, Robbie, this is really interesting and ironic. The book, uh, I still remember slightly, it was about Edith Cavell, a nurse. And this was way, way long before I decided that uh, I had a call to be a nurse. And so anyway, that was the first time I was published. And then, you know, that happened again and again. And then in high school, when I was on the the newspaper group, uh, class, whatever, um, and, you know, other things happened. And I started getting invitations. (laughs) Here was one of the best ones. In high school, I got offered passes to movies. And mind you, they didn't, it's not, it's not like it was, it is now. There was not a blockbuster all the time, every weekend, you know, and I got two passes to a movie and I was the teen film critic, if you will. Wow. That's amazing. Yeah. Yeah. What, I mean, it's really fascinating how, you know, this, this, um, I don't know this catalyst moment in fourth grade with this fourth grade teacher who, who obviously had an outsized impact because she kind of got the ball rolling by recognizing talent and, and, you know, you weren't, you were funny, but not like in a class clown disruptive, you were funny in a way that they thought of as like productive, right? It was such a line there. And it really depends on the teacher. Like another teacher might've seen that as not following the rules of the assignments, you know, being too outlandish, you know, right? Like, like perception of that one person of how they saw your content and they, they saw it as, you know, uh, developmentally, maybe a little beyond your peers, as far as the, what you created, right? That you weren't just writing an essay, you wrote a whole play, you had a whole storyline, right? So they see this as a potential positive. Someone else could have squashed your spirit. I mean, I don't know that adults fully always appreciate the, the moments that we say a thing um, and how long we all remember it. And then going forward to this librarian who has you focus on a book about a nurse. And then later you have a whole career in nursing. Who knows like how the threads of that, you know, you had a chance to really see that profession from a different perspective than, than most kids at a young age. So you kept putting yourself out there and up op- and ways that gave you opportunities to be invited to do get, do that again. And you were not an outgoing kid. You were not an attention seeker, but you were a kid who said yes. And I think that's a, that's a skill. Where do you think it comes from? that you were willing to say yes to things that were outside. I mean, there's that zone of proximal development, right? When you're like outside your own comfort zone, but it's not the, I can't do this at all. It's the, I need help doing this. You are willing to stay in that space a lot, even at a young kid. Like, is it your parents? Were there people like who were really supporting you and encouraging you from outside of the school's district? Well, I think it's a combo. I think in the first place, I, I wanted attention. Because I, I, I was like I said, I refer to myself as the oops kid, and my parents were busy. My dad was a restaurant uh, owner and nightclub owner, and my mom worked a lot during the lunch hour with him. I mean, when I was in school, it wasn't a thing, but you know, in the, in the summers, I I definitely remember this sort of being, you know, let to my own devices kind of thing. And I loved to sing, and. Um, uh, happily came upon a friend who was the choir director's uh, daughter. And when we got to, we became fast friends. And when we got to high school, she also had a funny set of, sense of humor. We started doing crazy skits and things and people would ask us because we, we just did. That was just a funny thing. We liked to do it. So in terms of why it was a 
seeking attention in a safe way, I think, and using my gifts uh, just because I'm a goofball at heart. So <laughs> that's yeah. what happened. Yeah. And here you are with improv is like the, the cornerstone of your leadership teaching. Well, um, if I might say, yeah. that's why I think also, gee whiz, I feel like I'm in the psychiatrist's office here. <laughs> You're very good at this. I, I think that that's why I didn't perceive myself as a leader. And when when I was a nurse, and even before I was in grad school, um, long story but I, that I won't go into, but in 2003 was my first professional um, speaking gig that came my way. And um, I didn't make a big deal of it, but the word got round to some people. And by that time, I'd already had two one-person shows and was certainly doing improv and teaching improv on the side. But at work, you know, it was it was not it was not something we talked about much, maybe among my my peers, but in the hierarchy, not so much. And yet they must have been talking because one day I remember the nurse educator came to me and I I I was an educator part-time, you know, I, I had an ed minor and was always tapped to do those sorts of things. And I like teaching. And she said, now, I want to talk to you about being a leader. And <laughs> I'm looking around. What, what do you mean? I thought maybe I was in trouble. Wow. She said, well, you know, yeah. um, when you speak, people listen. And I said, they do? <laughs> I, I mean, really? I didn't know. That's cool. Yeah. No, it sneaks up on you when you're just doing the things you have to do, which is the, which is also a, a better approach to living. Like you weren't climbing, you know, you weren't trying to do a certain thing or reach a certain height. You were doing the things you loved. Like early on, it was your friend. you know, later on you were, you were teaching because you'll enjoy doing it. People gave you the opportunity to speak. You said, yes. Like I, it feels like the same spirit that moved you in fourth, fifth and sixth grade uh, also is what you're, is who you are. I'm, I'm kind of curious, Candy, when you were 12-ish years old, what did you think you were going to be like in a oh. career way? What was the plan? You know, when I was 12, I hadn't a clue. Um, I just liked to ride horses when I was 12. I, I had my first job uh, other than babysitting when I was 13. I got 10 cents ahead for uh, being uh, a guide either in the front or in the back. I started in the back uh, at Red's Writing Academy up there in uh, uh, Rocky Butte uh, outside of Portland. And we would take people who didn't know about writing, you know, the tourists, and we would take them for an hour or two hour ride around. And I was just in love with horses. That's all I would have thought about when I was 12. I love that you found a way to get more riding hours in where instead of you paying to ride or, you know, you were paid to be in the saddle, like you're even this is a little bit of money, you were doing exactly what you would love to do. And you were helping people, which is also something you love to do, which is a very creative solution for a 13 year old who doesn't have like, you know, money to, to a bottomless pit of revenue to like spend on their hobbies. So you were like, oh, I can help out and ride. Um, that's very creative. Did did the path lead you into college? Was that part of your family tradition to go off oh. to formal schooling? Oh, heck no. When nobody in my family, except for, excuse me, one of my brothers went to college and he became a civil engineer and that was okay. My parents were from, you know, I mean, they had me, my mom had me when she was 40 or 41. That was old in those days. And they were young during the depression. They, they were kids during the depression. So for them, I mean, certainly my father as a restaurant and nightclub owner had achieved a pinnacle of success in his family because, you know, compared to his siblings who did other sorts of things, he was the only one to make his own living as a business person and be known in the community and have articles written about him and all that sort of thing. Um, he said to me when my counselor as a, a junior in high school said, you know, something about, let's talk about you going to college. And I told him that, and he said, why don't I just burn the money? 
this was not on the radar. So what happened was happily, I suppose it wasn't happy for our family, but there were some uh, considerations that happened that by the time I was a senior in high school, um, my parents had retired and there was almost no money. Um, you know, life gets in the way and there's sickness and there's other concerns that happen. And so suddenly, because I wanted to go to college and like I said, my best friend, she was going to college and her family, that was everybody went to college, you know, and they just didn't understand why I wouldn't. Um, my counselor said, I have an idea. You pick three colleges and we'll fill out the applications. All you have to do is ask your parents for the application money because uh, I want to talk to your to your one of your parents and because I think I can get you some scholarship. And so as a result, I got a full ride scholarship for my bachelor's, which, by the way, I changed. So I got the full ride scholarship in speech communication, thinking my parents thought, OK, well, you can be a speech pathologist and that'll be safe choice. But because I went to the same college as my high school best friend and then roommate that first year, um, they told me I had to be on the debate team to keep my scholarship. And I'm, I, I just, you know, not, I don't like arguing. And that's how I perceived it. And it was difficult. And talk about failure. Oh, can I tell you what we were debating that first year? What was it? Resolved that the United States should substantially reduce its foreign policy commitments. You would draw from the hat whether you were pro or con. What year was this? Oh, it was in the late 60s. Oh, my gosh. We were in the Vietnam War. You're, I mean, what a charged topic. Straight from the headlines. Oh, my gosh. And we didn't have computers, of course. So we all had like shoeboxes full of four by six and three by five cards or four by six cards. And we would read magazines and have to go to the library and the dusty stacks. And, and oh, my goodness, I was bugging my parents to buy, you know, The Economist. And <laughs> they were not interested in we we're doing everything we could to sound astute. And, uh, oh my gosh, but you know what happened? Every other weekend, we were on a bus going somewhere in the seven Western states because I was there in Tacoma, Washington. And um, I was missing all the fun stuff. My freshman year was terrible. And then my my roommate, who was a theater major, was having so much fun. I finally went to the department head and told him I wanted to quit. And I wanted to quit debate because I had, you know, a chance to be, you know, having fun over in the TV station and and doing some other stuff. And he said, you don't understand this. You're on scholarship. You can't quit. And so then I had this dilemma. And I quit anyway. You quit anyway. Well, I'll tell you this. Wow. This is funny. I haven't thought that's, of this in a long time. <laughs> that's something. I mean, yeah, what a big decision to have to make at a young age. But My parents you, were livid. They could yeah. not believe it. You're going to give up the whole thing? And I said, well, I don't know exactly how it's going to work. And they said, well, because I sort of made this decision uh, during the spring break. And so there were a lot of sort of things that fell into place. And one of the things was that I had been cast in... Um, uh, some freshman one acts and it was a funny it was a fun it's like a five or ten minute scene at the most and I it was an old western scene I have no idea what play it was I don't remember but I was the like kitty from Gunsmoke. I was the the gal in the bar you know and I had a boa and there was a a, a cowboy who came in and there was a bartender in this scene and we had rehearsed it a couple of times, I guess. I don't remember. There weren't a lot of lines. It was very simple. And it was just a, it was supposed to be just a silly whatever scene. 
And the curtain opened and the bartender said his line and started, you know, cleaning the bar like Jackie Gleason or something in the old movies. And then the cowboy came in and he had this look. He took one look at the audience. There's like 700 people. And he just froze. And I saw that. And the bartender looked at me. And so I knew everybody's lines. I just fed him his lines in question. Well, you look like you're about to say something. <laughs> I don't know. And because of that, I got cast in a bigger show, which usually freshmen don't do. And I started dating some guy from a, a school across the way who said, you know what? If they won't let you change your major, uh, I think you could transfer and I'll bet, you know, they, they, I've seen you, you're pretty good. I, I think we can work this out because he wanted me to transfer to be closer to his school. And so that's what happened. I got a full ride scholarship in acting from the University of Puget Sound. Unbelievable. I mean, you were very uh, attuned to what you liked and you were willing to give things up without having a natural next step planted in front of you. But if you hadn't sort of made clear to yourself in sort of spring of your first year that you were not happy, you wouldn't have sought out new opportunities. So it's like you would have been your biggest block if you had just sort of said, grit, just grit my teeth. I'm going to just grit my teeth and do this. You would not have probably been happy enough to pursue any of these other little acting things because you would have been just miserably like living your existence in a survival mode. But because you were willing to have that hard conversation with yourself and others, you then had space to take on these new opportunities that then led by virtue of circumstance to more and talk about improv that that moment on stage is very much rooted in that willing to sort of move people along. I mean, your leadership qualities are subtle in a lot of ways. Like the thing, I'm glad people sort of noticed them because you're not the person with the bullhorn in the front of the room, barking out orders. You're not the person drawing up the plans of attack behind the scenes. You're, you're the person who steps up in the exact moment that someone needs to step up and does the exact thing that someone needed to do that no one knew that someone needed to do. And you didn't either until that moment. And then you do it. And then people, people who are smart go, wow, that's that's a person with a lot of potential. Let's give her another opportunity with a little more preparation. <laughs> and then you do it again. You know, I, I thank you for that summary. That's very kind. And um, uh, I really was not aware of that uh, most all my life. Really, I wasn't. Speaking of the opportunities, before I left and changed schools, this whole thing about uh, just knowing what made me happy. I just knew that I was so miserable doing debate. And my debate partner and I, she and I had like the worst record of the whole school ever. I think we only won one debate in the whole semester. We were just, uh, she was even worse than I was. Okay. I'll say she was painfully shy. And I at least could read from the cards and sort of fake it. But anyway, I just knew how uncomfortable I was and how I didn't want to be that kind of person that I uh, that I saw who I called it the uh, debater's heir. Most of them were like poli-sci. They were interested in being attorneys and stuff. Now I understand they use those gifts. It wasn't a gift I had. And, you know, Growing up as as a, a faithful Christian girl, I always was was praying, you know, God, just make it reveal to me because I'm not very good about seeing the future. Just let me use my gifts. And it was so clear to me now that I look back on it that it was just so much fun. It was and and people liked it. I remember I did one silly commercial for the TV thing, you know, and they used to throw us a bone, kind of like I look at Saturday Night Live and think, oh, yeah, that's the sort of stuff that we were doing. Uh, this is even the year before Saturday Night Live, I think, started in the 70s, and we were doing it in the late 60s. Uh, one day, uh, they said, uh, we need a couple of commercials during this, you know, student uh, TV show. 
And so, you know, because my my roommate and I were just such goofballs, we were always talking about stuff. And one time she had a headache or something, and she would always call her mother about everything, which I thought was also very funny because um, I didn't have that kind of relationship with my mom. She's on the phone with her mother every single day. I'm like, we, we're away from our parents to be, you know, independent, but no. Anyway, she's going, mom, I have a headache. What should I do? And her mother said, go get some Alka-Seltzer. So we went to the student store and we got Alka-Seltzer and we had the funny, I had the funniest time with plop, plop, fizz, fizz. And I did this commercial then based on what would happen, you know, the what if question, which is key in improv. What would happen if, and so I did this commercial and it was just, I hadn't even really rehearsed it much. I just told them, okay, I got an idea for the commercial. I brought in the Alka-Seltzer and I had changed the label so it didn't look like Alka-Seltzer. I renamed it something else, Funny Seltzer. I don't remember what I said. Anyway, I open it up. I put it in a glass. I drink it on camera. And, you know, it was such a funny commercial that what happened at that TV station was he told me the next week, you, you're not going to believe it. He goes, I will never erase this clip of you because he said, we had a video technician come in. We had a little problem with one of the cameras. And I told him, look what happens. <laughs> and he said, they, they couldn't figure it out. Anyway, I've just been a goofball for such a long time. And, and I know that that is what gives me joy. So yes. Yes. No, I think. And that knowing, I feel like anyone listening needs to really dig deep to figure out that truth for themselves, because when you follow that path, you know, opportunities arise, you have fun in life. And, you know, I think too many of us resist even thinking about that because we like fall into a path or replaced in a path by our family. And then it's really, I mean, you were, you had a path laid out, right? Like you, had bumps in the road, but like it at least was a path. And for a lot of people that that's sort of like, oh, just keep doing the next thing, right? Is a little bit of security and saying no to that next thing and then having to figure it out all over again. Like that's a big deal. Now the pandemic forced everybody to reevaluate. I think we all just had a big shakeup, but people who had some practice in this probably responded differently because there's a little bit of muscle memory and, you know, a way of responding. And it's the same thing of like, when you're young, you don't know how things are going to turn out, but over time you start to see, Oh, okay. I, I can kind of look around the corner and sort of see that if I go this way or this way, like what might happen and what questions to ask and who to talk to. But when you're young, you just try things and you have a very improvisational spirit. I'm, I know you went into to nursing that became like a big career, but between the late sixties and 1995, was improv actually a part of your life? Because in 1995, it becomes a full big deal. Like you launch something, you're running something. How did improv show up in those, I mean, almost 30 years, you know, 25 plus years between college and showing up in the improv scene in a big way? You know, uh, I often say life is improv. And although uh, part of what you said is, is really true about sort of finding a path, when I graduated with that degree in acting and a minor in education, I thought I saw the path. I was going to be a repertory actor. I basically had made my way classically trained in Shakespeare and all and comic characters all the time and all that kind of stuff. And one thing led to another. And before I wound up going to New York to seek that profession. I had what we used to call a casting couch experience. And that was when um, one of my ex-professors after I graduated um, cast me in a comedy in Summerstock before I left for New York. And um, during a rehearsal uh, or after a rehearsal, no, it was during a rehearsal. That's right. During a rehearsal one night, and if you know Barefoot in the Park, it's it's mainly a two-person show. Um, the guy who played the husband uh, wasn't there. And so we were just doing some blocking and stuff. And, and what happened was he, um, well, assault is a big word, but I'll just say he was very inappropriate and in, in the worst sort of way mm. in my book. And um, 
I shoved him across the room and said, what are you doing? I mean, here's a, a guy who now I can recognize. He was in his 40s. I was 21 <laughs> or something, you know, and I had babysat for him and his wife and his kids. And I just didn't, I didn't recognize that he was going through some crisis. I should have known. I didn't know he was separated and all this other stuff. But anyway, he said, but you know, you're going to be an actor and that's the way the game is played. You're going to New York. And I said, no, not for me, not for me. Um, so I'll see ya. And he says, okay, see you tomorrow. And I said, no, I'll see you around. I quit. He goes, you can't quit. We have to open in three weeks. And I'm like, nope, that won't be me. I quit. I quit this and I quit acting, period. And I did for over I'm, a decade. I'm sort of sitting here a little stunned by the whole unfolding of this story, which <laughs> is probably a story that a lot of young women face even today. I mean, the whole Me Too movement has definitely been highlighting that has not gone away. You did not, you know, the whole like um, once shame on you, twice shame on me. You didn't wait for the second time, you, you know, you just said, oh, is that the culture? Is that the expectation? Uh-uh, I'm not, I'm not okay with that. And he was, you weren't allowing someone to sort of joke and jovial their way out of the, the seriousness of the situation. Again, at a 21-year-old sort of moment where you had this clear path, that's incredible that you were willing to step away. Um, what did you do next? How did you figure out how to recover from a setback like that? Well, I tell you, when I went back home with my tail between my legs, all my parents, my dad was the, you know, he he couldn't help it. I told you so, you know, you never should have blah, blah, blah. But my mom was just worried. You know, she was a housewife. She never had any education past the sixth grade. You know, um, they were worried about me. And I floundered for a year taking, taking menial jobs with a, a degree that got me nowhere. You mm. know, I was worked in a ticket booth for the Joffrey Ballet for a bit. And then I was a photographer's assistant. And um, then something happened that changed the world for me. And as my, uh, my friend's mother said, you just live a charmed life. Well, who could have known? But my mother brings in the paper one day and I was just, you know, doing my best to just be normal, but I, I really had no plan. And I was living at my parents' house, which is not what you want to do after you, <laughs> my mom brings in a paper and she circled this thing and it's Pan Am is coming to town and they are interviewing people. Well, one thing I didn't tell you was that I had an extraordinary opportunity my junior year in college to live a half a year abroad. And um, I made the most of that. I lived in Vienna most of the time. Um, because you see, I had a French speaking grandmother and a German speaking grandmother. And although I had to take those languages in high school and college, that sort of thing comes easy for me. I didn't recognize how useful that that would be. But because I'm short, I'm five foot two, I've never been a Barbie doll looker or anything like that. But I knew that Pan Am had a language requirement. And my mom said, while you figure it out, you always said you wanted to go back and travel. And that's expensive. So I got hired. And I spent the next five years in what I call the longest acting gig ever <laughs> all over the world. Because after all, Robbie, I had a costume, makeup, <laughs> and lines. A call time. <laughs> right. And I was on the whole you, time. Right. You write front of house the whole time. Absolutely. Got yep. to use all my languages, picked up a few more. Improv. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. yeah. And, yeah. and it was, to, to answer your question more directly, it was during that time after I'd flown for about four and a half years, when I was getting, you know, the biological clock was ticking, everybody I knew was married, probably already had at least one child. And I was thinking, you know, is this all there is? I don't know. I don't know. I got the call to be a nurse. It's one of my signature stories when 
I was um, my my seatmate and I during turbulence observed the back of this 747 where 124 people lost their lunch at once, ribbons of vomit. And uh, I learned that day there's two kind of people in the world: those that go to hide and those that go to help. And she did one, and I did the other. And when it was all done, she said how in the world could you do that? And I said, ah, oh, you know, you breathe through your mouth and that wasn't doing anything. I was just sort of covering the muck with the blankets that we used to have for everybody. I I knew that I could make a difference and started yeah. down that path. Wow. I mean, yes, th- that sounds like another big moment of, of inspiration. Like you really, it, it's, the, it's the moment of having something and then the learning you get from that experience. Mm. Like a lot of times we miss the learning. So uh, you were like, oh, well, I mean, I can, like you said, like the people who show up and people who hide. Um, where, where are you these days? Because you know, the pandemic changed a lot for a lot of people. Um, you and I really got to know each other through the improv that you've been doing to help leaders um, lead their teams better. So I had an opportunity to actually experience some of your, some of your techniques. Uh, I know that you just got off of a, another one woman show Florence Nightingale, congratulations on that. That's really exciting to be in New York doing your thing. But what is the kind of work you're focusing on these days? Like, who's the audience for it? As we say in this particular book, which I just got the improv to improve your leadership team, tear down walls and build bridges and create a culture of adaptability and innovation. That is half of what I'm doing. I still coach executive uh, executives in um, creating structure content and delivery of their message and, and uh, acting students. I'm a, because of my work in, uh, because of my experiences as a flight attendant, and then because my ear was attuned to all these other languages, and I started speaking a little French, a, a little Italian, Spanish, and Japanese, and I picked up on all of these things. Um, I worked as a commercial actor there in the San Francisco area, and now still do. Uh, I coach people on dialects sometimes, sometimes ESL students. You know, I'm just, it's, I don't like to be nailed down to any one thing. And then, of course, because the the uh, the COVID pandemic came, then after I relinquished my university post, I I had twelve contracts in three countries to do the show. Had to remake that, just like you had to remake your business. So now, part almost half of what I do is virtual, and then we're on the road again. So. We're booking now in a lot of nursing associations for the show, but also universities because we do um, how to use improv in teaching and clinical simulations. And uh, uh, so anyway, yes, and public performances too. So, so exciting. So a year from now, because I know you and I are staying in touch in various ways. A year from now, I'm going to remind you hopefully to, we had this amazing conversation and I'm going to ask you, uh, hey, what are you, what are you celebrating these days? What are we going to be toasting to a year from now? What are you most looking forward to in the year ahead? A couple of things. A TED Talk that I'm working on, on improv and how it can make a, a big difference in people's life. And then also a uh, a new course, because just based on what I just told you, uh, people have been at some of my coaching clients have been asking for that as you know, I've been cobbling together documents and so forth to sort of push out depending upon who I'm working with. And so I finally made a decision to uh, work with a creative director and and how to get that out there for for myself and and those other clients who are interested in improv to improve your presentation skills and your self-confidence. Wow. I can't wait to help you celebrate all these things, help you get to these amazing stages in life. Cause I know the ripple effect that you have when you do your thing, a lot of other people are able to do their thing better. How can people find you and follow your work? Oh, thanks. Well, there's two websites, one each dedicated to one thing and then the other. The improv website is candycampbell.com. And Campbell is like Camp Bell. 
And then uh, that both of them have videos and testimonials. The other one, though, about the Florence Nightingale show, my third solo show, is FlorenceNightingaleLive.com. And for people who don't know, you know, uh, a lot of people from the public performances are really surprised that Nightingale has such a broad appeal. Uh, even today, you know, she she's an old gal. I call her uh, a spunky old broad because she was a social reformer and she was one of the very first people who... Uh, espoused women's rights before it was a thing. And uh, one fun little fact that a lot of people don't know is that she wrote over 200 books and articles, and we have over 10,000 of her letters still around. I've read and categorized most all of them. But the fun fact is that she was such a visionary for uh, health and well-being of all people the work that she did and the vision that she had has been gathered and renamed by the World Health Organization as the 17 Sustainable Development Goals. So she's the like origination of the, I mean, I've heard of those. I've seen those. Yeah. She had a big vision. Wow. That's, that's all her, all her. (laughs) Did not know that. Wow. She's impressive. You're impressive. I'll put all these links in the show notes at ontheschmooze.com. Thank you so much for joining us. Uh, I really appreciate it. Oh, thank you. Fun to talk to you, Robbie. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Candy. What is your key takeaway? Something you'll put into action this week that you'll benefit from for years to come. Share what resonated with you in the show notes at ontheschmooze. Dot com. Look for episode 334. That's also where you'll find all the links and resources from today's show, as well as all the archived episodes. Reach out and let me know which were your favorite interviews. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with that one friend you know would love to hear it. Subscribe or follow for free so you don't miss next week's show. Are you a fan? That's awesome. I'd love to read your review. Thank you in advance and look forward to connecting again next week when I'll be interviewing another town professional who overcame challenges on their way to becoming successful. I'll ask them probing questions to get them to share untold stories about their entrepreneurial journey and how they built and sustained their professional network. Until then, have an amazing week. Thanks for listening to On the Schmooze podcast at www.ontheschmooze.com. That's On the Schmooze, S-C-H-M-O-O-Z-E. This podcast is heard along the Marketing Podcast Network. For more great marketing podcasts, visit marketingpodcasts.net.